what are you working on in the, the, the doc community right now? What, what, what are some of the exciting things that are happening and in, in moving forward? So this is this is good. So in terms of um, you know what we're going for here, because it was it was just uh, earlier today. I was also talking to somebody else, and they're like, you know, like what's really the objective here is that it's about knowledge sharing. We're trying to empower people to make these make these things easier and give people more options. Precisely what you're saying about empowering folks that are working with Kubernetes so that it's not so overwhelming, so that they can you know have that conversation with with teammates, with their with their boss to make suggestions. And, and, and all overall to provide, you know, better experiences and better value for, for their customers and in their companies. Uh, you know, imagining someone who's literally starting from, from scratch, starting from zero, no one should have to feel embarrassed about what they don't know. Just know that they're in a space where they can have access to, to, to learn from people that do have experience. So one of the things that, um, that we do as well, too, in every meetup because of that, because generally our, we could say our target, you know, SREs, DevOps, um, DBAs, you know, developers as well, um, people that are interested in, in infrastructure, uh, chaos engineering, because, um, you know, we were talking about outages earlier. That's an interesting topic, too. Um, people also that are more from a security background. So because they're, you know, if Kubernetes is a big topic and then we say data on top of it, wow, it just got enormous, you know. So we are trying to hit as many different angles as possible. DBAs, are, let's face it, uh, these are my people. This is, uh, we made the world what it is today and and there's no denying it but as everything happens it's it's an evolution and so you know you and i've talked about this and i've been talking to a lot of folks about it is this whole transition where i i want to help a large group of people get to one place and that's that dba to sre transition well dba's been a really uh important gatekeeper in a lot of ways because data infrastructure is typically the most expensive, right? That's where you get your high performance storage. That's where you get the most expensive servers. And for good reason. I mean, that if your database is slow, then everything is slow. And um, it is, has been, and still will be the center of the universe for running applications, whether it was back in my LAMP stack, <laughs> back in the day, or your CGI Perl one, <laughs> um, which I guess that was LAMP, um, but uh, to, you know, cloud native, Modern data apps are still a thing and thinking about all of the aspects, like being able to test performance, being able to know how the security should be set up. You, you, you guys have built something that's, that's a little unique because you have stayed true to the Apache 2 license. We've seen that a lot of other companies have already started to like shift. They've started to, oh, we're going to do, whether it's SSPL, a lot of people want AGPL. Yeah. Um, but but you have stuck with Apache too. Now, you know what was that? You know you you chose that what two you know four or five years ago now. Um, is, is that something that you felt pressure to change? No, actually, it's been. Um, I mean, like there's theory and there's practice. Um, there's always some level of worry about if you got the theory wrong. But when you see it work out in practice, it just makes it a lot easier, right? So. So our theory in 2016 was we need to not just think about the database, we need to think about the consumption of the database, right? And it wasn't a big secret that the world would eventually head to DBAS, but it wasn't clear when. So we said, you know what, we're going to strike the balance between the two sides and build something completely radical and unique. We're going to build a software-defined DBAS, so one that we can run when the time comes, but one the enterprises can run themselves, and that sits outside the database. So we'll make the database mostly free or open source. A small percentage of the open the database features would be held closed 
Um, and we launched the company in the end of 2017. And we said for our license, we're not picking AGPL because, hey, Mongo was AGPL and it still didn't stop Amazon and Azure from having a competing Mongo service. And Elastic was something, they changed their license. So changing licenses doesn't really stop people from competing. Hey, first, many times it's good to be a latecomer because as a latecomer, you, uh, you can come late And, and review everybody's mistakes and take the best and, and try to improve when so you're not you don't necessarily need to be the smartest you, you just get the experience of others we, we came not just a little bit behind but we, we came after everyone had their own noSQL solutions and uh, they were relatively uh, mature so we have to just rush and go and implement everything. And initially, it's very helpful because you don't necessarily need to make a lot of decisions. You, you need to make decisions in terms of the underlying implementation, but not the API. So it's relatively easy and it allows you to move fast and also to do things better. Um, but, but, uh, but now it's, now that we're kind of a met, accomplished the API of Cassandra and the API of DynamoDB, Now th this is where it gets complicated and we create new APIs and, and that's, that's a harder job to be the first person uh, that ever to toys with, uh, with new features. Uh, but, but it's also interesting and cool. Scylla is performance oriented, but in order to get it, the whole idea is to, to have great out of the box experience. Uh, we, we have, um, a shell script which is the installation tool that you just run it and it automatically configures all of the right kernel settings all of the right uh, oh, os okay. settings mm -hmm. uh, with one command it creates a ray device uh, with the right striping uh, it, it configures ntp uh, it, it does everything and and we even measure that tool runs a mini benchmark in order to evaluate the, the disk performance because One of the benefits of Scylla is uh, not, to, not to queue on the file system or on the disk, do the queuing uh, within Scylla so we can control and prioritize what's low latency IO and what's not latency sensitive. So our installation tool measures the disk performance. Uh, so we try to, and it's just one command that you run once and that's it. So simplicity matters a lot. Uh, I relate to it a lot. And, and also functionality like the CDC is it now is like super beneficial and, and uh, you can hook uh, a Scylla to Kafka super easily, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's other features that are really important. It's not just about performance. You, you know, it's a funny game how you get inspired by one tool and you inspire someone else and you, you use something and someone else uses your code back or your functionality back. I just love that about, about open source. So that's, anyway, that's how Orchestrator began, began. And then, um, you know, it grew out of that position into, okay, let's try and do at least partial failovers. Let's try and figure out how to, uh, how to overcome the fact that we don't have GDIDs yet. 5.6 was only coming out. It was very early days for GDID. It, was, it wasn't easy to migrate into GDID. And so that's where Orchestrator came up with pseudo GDID. 
um, I, did, I then joined Booking.com and then we realized uh, Orchestrator could be the high availability, high availability solution for Booking.com's topologies. And that's, that's what we did. So during my time in Booking.com, my main focus was to turn Orchestrator into a failure detection and recovery mechanism that could you know, promote new primaries, uh, you know, take some servers out of the game and completely rehaul the, the existing topologies uh, um, or rethink the existing topologies we had at Booking.com. What, what is that thing that you keep on seeing companies make the same mistake over and over again and you just wish they would stop? Using the wrong tool for... The, the the round peg square hole syndrome, right? Where yeah, okay. we've made we've 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 made an an investment into X technology, so we're using that technology. A use case comes in that doesn't quite fit it, and so then we just fight with it's not a good fit, <laughs> and we continue to fight with it's not a good fit. Um, and you know, understandably, right? You don't necessarily want to always spin up new technologies, but that's the beauty of these open source databases, right? They're different. They're designed for different use cases and there's no one size fits all. Um, but there's generally a size that really fits what you need. And um, because enterprises, it's not a trivial thing, right? If I say, hey, just use this technology. Well, that's like a two year project to get that spun up where it's like, well, we already have this infrastructure in place. So let's continue to use that. Um, and and then sometimes if it's the wrong use case, it's just pain from that point on. Um, and so I think that's one that, you know, being willing to to do that and have access to those other other database options, um, that would be a good thing. Before joining Percona, I have never opened my SQL search code. It it, it was like something unbelievable on, in my in, in in my case. And uh, I remember working with Marco in, in some case and he said, Well, it's it's open source, dude. Let's open the the source, <laughs> and uh, once I started to to get familiar with with things, uh, I I was always then attracted for for crashing. And every new ping we got on Slack, and it was crash signal six, signal eleven. No one wanted to touch those type of cases, and I was like, leave leave to me, leave to me. So it was like an opportunity to get a real case uh, scenario and like explore a bit more of of the source code. And then I remember I tried to apply to an engineering position, but it's it it was like some senior position, and um, I, I was not accepted. <laughs> and basically talking with uh, with uh, Karina, my manager at the time, I said, "Well, that's actually what I want." And she spoke with George, which is my my actual uh, manager at the moment, and we did some sort of arrangement. I work at four days a week on support and one day a week as as a, a engineer, a, a C plus plus engineering. But what Elastic did was they have shifted from the Apache license, open source, to the SSPL license. Now, I've been ticked off on Twitter for calling SSPL proprietary, <laughs> which I thought was really funny because there's these big proprietary companies who are quite happy being proprietary and have made a lot of money out of it. You know, I don't think they consider it a dirty word. It's only a dirty word if you've been disingenuous and you've allowed people to believe you're open. So if everybody is honest, if everybody's straightforward, if everybody has their cards on the table, 
that's not a problem. You choose to be proprietary, you're proprietary, you choose to be open, you're open. Where I think the problem has come is for whatever reason, and you could be right, it could be that the founders thought it was fine when they started, but there is a shift with VC investment. Where that problem comes is when you can't generate revenue because others are able to use your code for free. And that's not, it is an open source issue, but if you go back to the strip mining you were talking about, and you look at the New York Times piece on that from, I think it was December 2019, Yep. And I was really surprised to see that because to me it was like, hey, open source is in the New York Times. But if you read the article, it doesn't actually talk about open source particularly. It's talking about the service layer in the cloud environment and small companies not getting to sit at that table, not getting their share of that service layer. Yeah, I guess we're in a world where, I mean, you know much more about that than I do in that whole database piece, but I guess we're in a world where a company's value isn't necessarily measured in profitability, right? And that's the kind of shifts that we were talking about that right back at the beginning when I, I was saying that as a lawyer joining an open source company, you have to unlearn what you know. I think there's a lot of unlearning around economics as well. But what we want to do now is take a totally different approach. And we want to look at, uptake of open source and then we want to try and work out value the value that that's generating so moving away from this gdp focus for me that's sort of educating our government educating our business folk to the importance of open because i want to see them invest in it i want to see them invest in it both through laws and policy but also in their business spend with an understanding how important it is and it sort of leads on to what you were saying about education so I think we've done the generation behind us a bit of a disservice, right? For developers who grew up after 89, after the Linux kernel, we just kind of assumed that they would get it. Whereas those of us a little longer in the tooth, we went through a process where we were rejecting an existing system. We didn't want copyright. We didn't want, oh, we didn't, I guess we don't get away from copyright as a misstatement, but we didn't want proprietary we wanted to move to this open licensing and it was a choice and an understanding and for some a battle and a war. And we just kind of expected the next generation to get it. And that was wrong. It wasn't fair. They're not going to just get it. Like I would say five years ago, it, it was hard to do some performance diagnostic because we didn't have perf and we only had O profile and it was so heavy. Uh, and now we have perf that improved performance diagnostic a lot uh now we have bpf trace which you know it's uh, dtrace for linux so that's also a great move forward so perhaps that's one thing that i could say that is hard in the open source environment um moving people to newer versions you know uh so the big enterprises they use open source, they now embrace it, Linux, they, they are sure that's the way to go, but they are super conservative and they are still running 2.6 kernels, right? So, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I have, I don't know, 5.14, 5.16 in my, in, my, in my laptop. These guys are running, you know, uh, 2.632 with a, a thousand patches, you know, it literally probably has a thousand patches on top, but still, right? And some stuff is backported, some stuff is backported in an incomplete way. Um, but yeah, that, that's uh, hard. And sometimes people doesn't believe you 
if you tell them, oh, you know that old kernel, your NVMe drives, they're probably not going to give you older twos because there are no uh, proper schedulers, IO schedulers for those. And, you know, the drivers for SCSI, they, they didn't have the multi-queue stuff. So it was like, yeah, you need to upgrade. And, and that, that's kind of hard, like getting people to upgrade. People's running MySQL 5.5, uh, <laughs> Mongo 3.2, all, all stuff that it's end of life. If, if I am using a product and you change the license, like it happened with Mongo, uh, you know, like the, the change they did didn't affect most users, uh, but they certainly affected their freedoms. Now, those users no longer have one of the freedoms they used to have. And so that, that point is uh, they can also change other freedom tomorrow. They changed it one that didn't affect you, or apparently, but they could change another one tomorrow. And they yeah. could, you know, when they come up with new features, oh, look, the article I gave you today, you know, it's like uh, you can see uh, great improvements going into the enterprise version and not into the open source version. And well, yes. MongoDB has done that since the beginning. MariaDB is doing it now with the uh, redo log options, advanced redo log options, you know. And, and yeah, that actually hurts people when things are geared towards pushing customers into an enterprise option. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it, you know, like your example with McDonald's, like the guys found a way to actually fix those machines. And they yeah. started sharing because they, they somehow knew that sharing, someone will come up with a, an improvement, a fix, a cheaper way to build that uh, toy that will uh, plug to the uh, ice cream machine and fix it. So, you know, that's community as well, right? Like that was a community in action and, and that's the one great thing. And, and, and that's why I think Facebook open source that stuff. I think uh, the most common mistake is focusing on backups. Actually, okay. backups, backups don't matter. Okay. And it, it's quite shocking uh, seeing this in a conference about backups. Backups only matter for compliance. That's the only reason you are forced to have some kind of backup. What really matters is recovery. Ah. Ah. You don't need a backup strategy. You don't need to think about backups. You need to think about recovery. Because the important subject is recovery. If you have a great backup, but for whatever reason you are not able to recover it uh, in time, for example, then your backup it, it doesn't matter. I, I used to say that you can have uh, 19, uh, I mean, I prefer to have 99 failed backups and one successful recovery than uh, uh, 99 successful backups and one failed recovery. Because the, the, the real critical issue is recovery. And uh, this, this is the, the whole uh, point of the, the beginning of, of, of my talk was, you need to think about the things that can happen. Uh, obviously, the, the amount of things that can happen is, is infinite, and you can't probably prepare for everything. Uh, and then you have to decide uh, what's, uh, 
kind of protections you are going to apply, and then prepare the backups to cover these uh, possible incidents. The, this this brings me an, inter an interesting concept. It's the the Schrodinger backup. Uh, it's this is a backup that uh, you did successfully, but you are not able to recover. So it's a backup that is at the same time is in two states. So for example, if you have a really large database, uh, you can have some uh, uh, fast uh, disks. You can have all the infrastructure to be able to make the backup. But if you don't have a good support contract, in the case of you are working with bare metal, you can find that your server is not available and you will need one week to get the server. So uh, the, the, I, the, the, the whole point is that uh, you need to think on the problems and then uh, uh, fix them. And obviously, you need to test the other. And this is a cost uh, that you need to assume. It's, it's pretty much the same that if you buy an insurance, we, we are used to pay for insurance, for uh, uh, security, physical security, uh, guards, and, and, and things like that, we also have to pay for backups, and we need to know uh, what we want to be protected of. So in the case of a huge, really huge database, uh, or, or whatever, uh, if you really uh, want to recover it, uh, you need to test backups. My recommendation is first, do not use a single uh, backup strategy. What I mean is, don't uh, usually backup is is pretty much like, well, I have a backup. That's it. Uh, I, I I really recommend, uh, for example, use a mixed strategy of physical and logical backups. So okay. sometimes, for example, once a week you do a, a physical backup. Then every day you perform incrementals, and then maybe once a month you perform a, a, a logical backup, uh, just uh, to to have uh, both both versions of the of the thing, okay? Uh, for for various reasons. For example, if you have a um, uh, some kind of corruption, sometimes you can by copying the files you are transmitting the corruption. You are replicating the corruption. Uh, if if you force reading the whole database, you will find that corruption. The, the, the database server will detect it and say, okay, I have here in, in, in this uh, block of disk, something is, is broken. And, and um, if possible, back up your big logs also. And regarding how long you have to keep your backups, uh, it depends on compl compliance. It depends on uh, the size of the database, obviously, because the more, the, the bigger, more space you need to to store the database, and it depends also on what you want to be protected of. What would you say is the number one problem that developers continually fall into? Um, when trying to build their databases and design their applications when it comes to SQL? 
I think the number one problem is to not version control uh, their database from the beginning. So they want to just try around a little bit and add some table here and some table there. And before they, they know it, they, they go live with, with some great table script, and it's a complete mess. So they don't think about how to increment their database schema. So, and if you have to do that after the fact, it's, it's much harder to get it right. So I think the number one problem for developers is to, from the beginning, use something like Liquibase or Flyway or whatever tool that helps you be very diligent and very careful about your database schema design, of course, as we discussed earlier, but also evolution. So the database schema evolution is, is one of the still, I think, unsolved problems. So uh, Flyway offers a lot of uh, simple tooling to just uh, get the, uh, the database increment scripts in the right order, but it's it's just very script-based, so you can do everything the database can do, but it's script-based, you have to do everything manually. Liquibase offers a little bit more help with the XML or, or uh, YAML or JSON format, I think, what they're doing. and. Um, so, so you have some abstraction over the dialects and syntax and, and maybe a little bit easier to manage, but you have to do a lot of stuff manually. I think there's still a room for a new vendor to, to solve problems in this area. Uh, but even if, that, if that's not available yet, you should, you should think about how to properly increment your database changes and, and version control them. So it, it's really weird that we're using version control for all languages, but not for SQL. If you have a okay. too many connection, too many connection, then there, there is some stage that you won't able to connect to the more connection to that server. So you need connection cooler because sometimes there is no need to. Uh, you, you need to think about your active users. So you need to have some kind of an, a cooler, and PG Bouncer is the one of the best cooler available. So you have to put PG Bouncer, and then you can use the database. But if you have okay. a very less connection, then don't use the PG cooler that you can use directly to the database. But if you have a large number of connections, then I think PG uh, Bouncer is the one of the best. Is, is there any risk when you add additional extensions that the core database slows down? Uh, yes. Actually, you need to press some trusted uh, extension. Because that's, okay. that's the issue. If you start, start installing the extension from third party, and you have to look at who is building that, who is behind that. If somebody is, you don't know about that, and that extension is not a well-known extension, then there is a risk even your database can crash. You have to be very careful because people don't use a third-party extension which is not written by well-known people. Well, so should some well-known company behind that, which is supporting that, so its code is well-written and well-documented and it's worked perfectly. So then they start using that. Otherwise, it's a risk. Some kind of an extension, if a post-GIS and something like that, so you don't have to worry about that because it's well-known extension. So you don't have to worry to install post-GIS or post-SQL FGW like that. So, but if you are talking about some extension which is not well-known, it can cause performance issue, it can cause your the stability issue. Um, you know, one of the surprising things that I learned during your session was the recommendation for the shared buffers is only 25% um, of your total memory. Yeah, it's not default. Default is very low. Default value okay. is very low. It's And when you're talking about 25%, it's just a documentation. Because it was documented at that time when we have a database, database and have an application server on the same system. 
So when you have an application server and some other stuff and a database on the same system, then you cannot give a 70% to the database. So application server or something else need memory. So that's why people saying that 25% is the good one. But I'm talking about when you have a dedicated database. So why not give the maximum you can give to the database? Because usually now a database is a standalone system nowadays. So you can give um, 50%, 70%, so you can give that. It will give you a really good performance. But keep in mind, you have to think about your workload. workload. If your workload is just 30% uh, of your total RAM, so why you are giving you 70%, 60%, 30% is enough for that? Because there is no advantage of giving more to the database. Yeah, the main, the shared buffer. Because the other are some dedicated, uh, dedicated ones, like the ball buffer, the Workman, the maintenance workman, they are all for the specific purpose. But shared buffer is the common one. Okay. If you want to say that you have to tune your database for the as a memory concept, tune your shared buffer first. That's okay. it. No, no, it's still got the same. Just because there's no create table statement doesn't mean that you don't have to work out what your collection or document structure is. Uh, in MongoDB, um, we have a chapter on this in the book, obviously. It's it's sort of you know, the same, in a way, it's got a lot of the same considerations as relational modeling, but, um, and you'll see it in all the MongoDB, you know, um, material on, the, on their website. There's a lot of talk about, do I link everything? Do I embed everything? Um, so for instance, you know, the, the naive model for MongoDB is, I just have an object and I just dump it into um, the database is adjacent document and it's got repeating groups in it. You know, it's got arrays and arrays of embedded objects, but MongoDB can only have 16 megabytes in that one object. So you can't put, for instance, you can't put every tweet for a user if you're doing some sort of like Twitter-like application. You've got to break it out somehow. Um, but it, it, you know, you might have enough room to put every um, line item for an order that might always fit in 16 megabytes. If you do things like repeating the, the name of a product in um, the embedded document, when you need to change the name of a product or change its price code or anything like that, you're gonna to have to update it in not one spot, but a, a zillion different spots, you know, as many as many documents as there are orders. And all of those trade-offs um, are just as real today in MongoDB as they were 10 years ago in MySQL. It's just a matter of, you know, what sort of denormalization do we want? Um, we don't sort of have quite so easy joins, so we want to avoid splitting stuff up, but we can't embed everything in the same document. So there's a whole sort of discipline for MongoDB, and it comes down to whether you link documents or embed them or do some sort of hybrid pattern. Yeah, so we, um, um, our, our aim is to sort of be at the intersection of database technology and blockchain technology. So. You know, now I'm, 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 I just can't help going into pitch mode here. So just forgive me as, as I do it. That's okay. You know, Go into pitch mode. And all that. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when I was working with databases, you know, for most of my professional life is that we didn't really have any way of guaranteeing the contents of the database. You know, I, I knew as a DBA that I could just manipulate the database and leave no trace. And, you know, beyond that, you know, you could get down to the database files and, and change bits and bytes in there or go straight to the disk. And so when, when the database says, you know, this, this row or this document was inserted on this timestamp, there was really no particularly good reason to believe it. You know, you're just really trusting the developer or the DBA um, that they hadn't been corrupted or that no hacker had gotten and changed that. And then blockchain changed um, 
gave us the ability for the first time to have immutable records where we could be sure that no one had manipulated them since they'd been, you know, added. But there was no way you could build a, a sensible application on top of a blockchain platform. They just didn't have the storage capability, no schema, you know, bad performance, bad economics. So what we've done at ProvenDB is we've added to MongoDB as our base platform, um, a sort of an anchoring system that takes the data in MongoDB and creates digital signatures and anchors them to the blockchain transparently to you. You don't, you don't have to do anything for this to happen. Um, and then if you want to assert that, you know, like to an auditor um, or, or to some other regulator um, or to a customer that, no, this is the record, this is the proof of identity document, this is your will, this is the accounting transaction, these are the legal signatures. Um, you can prove without any doubt whatsoever that the dates of these documents are, are correct. So you decided to leave Tencent and start ZetaDB. Yeah. And so now you have a project called uh, Kudla. It sounds like you really approached your project by trying to take the best that was in Postgres and the best that was in MySQL and combine the two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, because I also worked on Postgres for several years in Teradata, and uh, uh, I know uh, how it works. I know its strengths and weakness. So. Uh, basically, basically uh, in the Quinlan project, what I want to do is to combine the best of both uh, Postgres and uh, MySQL. Uh, and I believe the, the, the essence, the, the best part of uh, Postgres is the query processing. And for MySQL, it's the InnoDB storage engine and it's uh, binlog uh, replication. Uh, although it's, uh, it has also very good optimizer, yes, for sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, I believe if I combine the two, I, I can build something new. Uh, that's the Quinlan distributed, distributed uh, DBMS. Uh, now uh, we are in the uh, we are very close to making make it a commercial database system. It has all the uh, basic functionality, including the transaction processing, the query processing, uh, the, the common DDL and DML statements are all supported now. So, uh, and it shows very good performance uh, and also other aspects, uh, for example, stability, crash safety, and so on. Yes, but at the same time, developers, you know, they need evidence. Yes. They will, not, they will probably trust my words, but it would not help them to fix the problem. They need evidence. So the tools I'm interested in, they may provide the evidence they need. And uh, I try to provide it in a way they like. So I would say that over the last five years, the habits and preferences of MariaDB developers shaped uh, the uh, main uh, tools I am trying to study. So it's, it's, it's not like uh, out of the blue, I decided to study something new. I was asked a specific question. I was suggested a specific tool. They would like to get stack traces, for example, for everything, not a performance schema uh, outputs for whatever reason. We can argue about that. It, it's, it's clearly visible in uh, specifically in MariaDB. So I am trying to provide what they want to see. If it's Windows, I am trying to study some Windows tools even. Speaking about the open source, luckily, most of them would be happy if the problem is repeatable on Linux, most of them, almost right. all of them. So that's why um, I have this uh, 
benefit of, of using some older knowledge and uh, uh, studying really key cool things that uh, are found by others, are created by kernel developers for themselves. And maybe they are not yet so popular among MySQL DBAs, but I have a chance to make them popular and they use it. How it's possible that in the mature software that uh, in the part of it that was uh, there for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, probably, they can assume that, like core protocol parts or whatever, we find some new bug. How is it even possible? That's yeah. because the test coverage for that specific uh, part of the code had never been 100%. Or it was at some stage, but then this coverage was removed, for example, while working on some new features, while speeding thing up, things up, while supporting different platforms. Things may be removed without uh, nobody notice it until uh, they break. Yeah, we would like to prevent that. So we are going even that far. Surely in the process, uh, at least what will my SQL DBAs get from all this and MariaDB DBAs, they will be prevented from uh, going the wrong ways, for example, as I did. And I speak about that, uh, trying quickly to, to uh, trace uh, every memory allocation with BPF trace. That's doable. That slow things down to not being practical. Great that I tried it myself way before I ever suggested it to anyone in production. Because getting your results in 10 minutes while sacrificing three times the performance, roughly like that. Well, and this is where I see that there's... It's awful. I would not ever want to, to suggest that to anyone without yeah. knowing it before. So this is what I'm working on. I'm trying to be ready. Yeah, I, I think... There's two I know good though, things right? and bad things about the tools uh, I, uh, I've already used. So that's the point. These new tools uh, do not replace uh, the historical uh, procedures, common sense uh, that okay. all DBAs uh, have. I know MariaDB is very eager to work with the community on contributions. Um, you know, what sort of things are you looking for help with? Uh, how can people get involved? Uh, we've got uh, a GitHub account, and you can just send pull requests to there, and we'll uh, work through and uh, merge code. We get a lot of code actually contributed from um, distro maintainers, the NetBSDs, the FreeBSDs, just to add that little bit of extra portability to to make them happy uh, and get that working. Um, there's, you know, things like uh, what I've mentioned. Um, that are just improvements and things that can get going. Uh, there's, uh, can also, I guess we've got a knowledge base where you can write documentation. Um, we've got a, a Zulip, Zoom, a Zoom, not a Zoom, a Zulip channel on zulip.mariadb.org okay. where you can just, um, like a Slack channel, it's a, it's a chat program where you can come in and talk to us about bugs, features, uh, that kind of thing, or, or just you know SQL problems, really. If the, um, if you get us at the, the right time, we'll happily look through those and, and get a bit of insight into what you're doing. Um, yeah. now, now you mentioned you kind of moved from a DBA to a DBRE or a DBE. Has your role really changed that much? It you know what responsibilities like? But when you look at those two roles, a no. lot more companies are moving away from hiring quote-unquote DBAs and more are looking at SREs or DBREs. 
what's the difference? I mean, you've, you've lived in both worlds. What do you see as the difference between those two? Yeah, uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, from my side, like, when uh, I'll, uh, if I talk about me, when I was at the DB, I was looking at only at one system. Uh, like, I was uh, uh, making sure that one system is up, uh, or, like, all the time, and then making sure that the performance is not impacted. But when I moved to a DBE role, like, instead of looking at the system, uh, at a single system, I was, like, managing hundreds of, or even thousands of uh, servers. And uh, account for uh, the high availability of the systems and uh, even uh, make sure that uh, they are like reliable, not just a single system, but the uh, whole uh, environment. Uh, that's a major difference. Like I no longer run any alter commands or anything. It's all automated. I don't no longer run a backup or anything. Like it's everything is automated at a uh, system level. Uh, even the point in time restore, everything is like, uh, uh, like you, we have like a lot of tools uh to automate that one of the things that you've talked about is um synchronous replication versus asynchronous replication uh so uh, like like i mentioned in the talk like uh, we are limited by the uh, speed of light uh, here like uh, light travels at a constant speed and uh, you are on the one side of the globe and on the other side of the globe it takes uh, roughly around like uh, 0.5 milliseconds i guess uh, but uh, uh, we can't tolerate that uh, that kind of latency, uh, so that's why we uh, we definitely uh, need to have async replication. But again, like uh, the biggest problem that comes into the mind is uh, the conflict resolution. Uh, like, how do you uh, resolve the conflicts when there are uh, multiple writes at uh, same places? So, uh, like last writer win is a, like a very commonly used uh, strategy uh, across uh, other databases as well, like all across all, all the other distributed systems so uh, but the problem is uh, mysql does not uh, uh, have the native capability to uh, uh, to give the uh, any any sort of uh, conflict resolution or even like uh, like for example if you take galera cluster like there is no option to disable the certification process because the certification process itself uh, takes a lot of time it has to communicate with all the nodes and get a uh, act from all the nodes so that the, the site is certified but that takes a lot of time and there is no option to disable that certification process. And even if my application says it's my botheration to uh, deal about the conflicts or it's my botheration that I will take care of my data, but the any any synchronous uh, replication or anything, they does not let you do it. Like they, I mean, because that, that is their product and uh, it has to be, they give more weightage to the consistency part. 